luminaries, talking to the brightest minds in tech. And my hope is that we come together to share more than technology and expertise and products, but that we share a vision of a future that is better than today. A vision of technology as the driver of human progress. Your hosts are Mark Schaefer and Douglas Carr. Welcome everyone to another episode of Luminaries, where we talk to the brightest minds in tech. This is Mark Schaefer with my co-host of two years now. We've been doing this two years, Doug. I'm so happy. Can you believe it? Uh, it's been an incredible ride, and I I feel uh, we connect with all these brilliant people, and I, I feel like I'm not worthy. It's we, we really have talked to some amazing people, and today is no exception. I guess if you had to pick a, a theme for today's show, it would be the eyes have it. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Was that a good joke or was that a lame joke? We'll, we'll let our audience decide. Okay. If it was a lame joke, would you tell me, or is this, are you sort of like the Ed McMahon of the luminaries, where you would never disagree? I'm going with the Ed McMahon. Well, that's all right. I like that. So listen, I want to welcome the founders of Voxeleron, Jonathan Oakley and Daniel Russikoff. They are the principal scientists behind this amazing company. And fellas, I'd love to welcome you to our program. We're so honored to have you here. And I've read through your material and just I'm blown away by what you're achieving. But honestly, I'm afraid that I'll botch it up <laughs> if I try to describe what you actually do. Can you help me out and tell me a little bit about what Voxeleron is about? Sure. First off, uh, thanks for having us on. It's a, it's a real privilege to be here. And uh, it's, it's my first ever podcast. This is Daniel Oh, that's here. awesome. That's great. So I think to understand what we do, it, it helps to take a step back. Uh, Jonathan and I both got our PhDs in the field of computer vision uh, with specific applications in medical image analysis. Uh, we actually met at Fujifilm working in radiology. This is the, the first medical discipline to really embrace automated analyses, uh, and there was a real appetite for it. So we were kept very busy working with state-of-the-art technologies on real-world interesting problems and with, with great results. We're also helping bring those algorithms through the regulatory process, so it was a real education for both of us. Uh, then Jonathan left for Carl Zeiss Meditech and the opportunity to work for a, work on a new imaging modality called optical coherence tomography, uh, and I'll let him take it from there. Um, and thank you for having us. Now, is this your first podcast too, Jonathan? Um, yes, it is. Yay! Look at this. We're breaking new ground everywhere. <laughs> well, yeah, today. social media is not our thing. <laughs> Well, it is tweet, now. Yes, Here we go. This is, these are new inroads, and we're we're glad to uh, travel them. So, I indeed, it was the case that having a, a background in radiology was extremely useful and extremely impactful at, at Zeiss. Um, the focus had been on understanding you know, noise and signal, which turned out to be pretty irrelevant to the image interpretation tasks that they needed to have diagnostic utility as they moved with this new modality and into 3D, which was not really, well, was pretty much unheard of in ophthalmology at that time. It's kind of two and a half D solutions with a previous scanner and so on. And the strength was, was clearly the hardware. So it, it was great. It was exciting to work on this stuff. And um, one particular algorithm I worked on um, in a retinal segmentation. It had utility in glaucoma 
which is a complex neuropathy. Um, so other neuropathies, neurological disorders also mm. wanted to use this measurement. And um, I was lucky enough to work with the multiple sclerosis lab at Johns Hopkins, and we published extensively on on our findings there. And this this was extremely exciting. Um, but I, I knew even then that you know, if I joined forces again with Daniel, we could do way better using new, more advanced algorithms. And that's exactly uh, what happened. We, the, the idea at that time was that we could, you know, create Voxeleron and do that in support of neuro-ophthalmic applications because this was, this was really new, um, using the eye as a window to the brain. I mean, we hear that all the time now, but when we formed Voxeleron almost nine years ago, this wasn't the case. So we, we, we did exactly that, and um, we're, we're into these technologies, we're into the clinical application, and then somewhat unburdened by you know, larger corporate demands, we've been able to focus exactly on those things, develop more and more algorithms. But the focus has returned, actually, to ocular diseases, just based on the fact that there's larger unmet needs in that area. You know, for example, there's no good Drusen segmentation algorithm available in the instruments today, and that's very important for dry AMD. AMD, a disorder that can lead to blindness that afflicts you know, 10 million people in the, in the United States. Um, it's the worldwide leading cause of uh, vision loss um, uh, for people over 50. And so, you know, these are important measurements, these are important diagnostics, and people aren't addressing them particularly well. And while we don't make the scanners, we can work with all of the scanners. So to some extent, we like to think we're kind of like a Photoshop for <laughs> OCT analysis. We'll work with anything and we'll do it more, in, in more, offer more advanced tools, more clinical endpoints, and so on. So that was the etiology, if you will, of Oxeleron. You're combining traditional computer vision with AI. Is the gap that you're closing the interpretation of the results? So I, I like to think that what, what we're doing, and, and to be fair, others are, are doing too, is um, sort of democratizing expertise. Uh, you know, the best physicians in the world right now are still on, only human and can see a finite number of patients in, in a given day. Um, essentially, we're building their expertise into our systems, mm. uh, using our technology to try to you know, provide all physicians with world-class diagnostic assistance. So if, if we're doing our jobs right, anyone anywhere with access to an OCT scanner and the internet uh, can receive the kind of diagnostic care you'd get at, at say, the best university hospitals. Um, but that brings up another important point because, you know, the, the pace of innovation in medicine is staggering at this uh -huh. point. You know, the experts, you know, the experts we're trying to imitate, they're getting inundated with all kinds of data. Today, it's high-res 3D images. You know, tomorrow, it'll be entire genomes. Um, uh -huh. There's no way they can sift through all that information in any reasonable amount of time without serious automation. Um, and I think this is another spot where we can have a huge impact. You know, our software helps physicians quickly explore these huge data sets and get the information they need to make the correct diagnosis. So, uh, I mean, this is, uh, first of all, I love what you're saying here because Doug and I have had the opportunity to talk to many wonderful experts, uh, really some of the greatest minds in, in, the, in the business. And often we'll ask them, well, what, what technology application are you most excited about? 
And almost always, it has something to do with the medical field. They just think the the way technology is being applied to the medical field is just going to be a game changer. And it sounds like that's what we're sort of talking about here. So why why the eye? You know, what's special about the eye? I've read how other companies like, um, uh, you know, like Watson, uh, they're trying to get into the medical field so doctors can sort of make a diagnosis uh, more quickly. So what's what's tricky about the retina? What makes that more complex than other parts of the body? So, um, well, first off, I'm, I'm not a cl- clinician. I'll, I'll take on some of the, the question. Um, it, it's certainly complex. It, it's essentially an extension to, to the brain. Um, as some people say, you know, that um, the, the, the retina, you know, it's the, it's the front of the brain. And mm-hmm. so it's made up of neuronal tissue. It has cell bodies. It, they have axons. They have dendrites. Um, the, these feed through the, the optic nerve um, head into the optic nerve. And there the axons are myelinated and go on to the midbrain and then to the visual cortex. So it, it's, it, it's a part of this, you know, whole you know central nervous system but it but it is neuronal so it it truly is an extension to the brain and it's the visible part of the brain so it's it's very interesting if you have any neurodegenerative disorder that has a manifestation structurally in the eye you can measure it you can measure it readily you don't need an mri scanner you you can use an office-based oct and you can see um what changes are occurring, and then this can lead to the development of new therapeutics, also the diagnosis of various things. Um, it, it's a, it's very complex. There's other things going on. I mean, there's pressure that can build up in the eye due to a lack of aqueous outflow, and you know that's a symptom of glaucoma. Uh, there, there's there can be um, surgery that can then reduce that, and your susceptibility can relate to how thick or thin your cornea is. So it, it is complex, um, but the, the diagnostics are really advanced. Um, the imaging is is fundamental to this. Um, the trick, I think, is the interpretation, and this needs to be done in a timely way. If, you know, a lot of these diseases can be asymptomatic and we don't know about them unless we, we happen to be scanned and we it happens to be read by a top ophthalmologist. And these people are thin on the ground. And imaging is really the forte of AI or deep learning. And this is why it can play such an important role, it can be so impactful to um, modern clinical support, decision support, um, drug development, and, and so on. Um, and this can already be seen. A company called IDX has a deep learning-based diabetic retinopathy screening tool. Um, and it's not decision support. It's actually the decision. It's F- FDA approved to make the referral. So this is significant. Um, so, yeah, imaging is super important in ophthalmology. The the eye plays an important role in, of course, ocular diseases, but neuropathies. And, you know, in, in general, there's systemic diseases that have manifestations in both the retina and choroid. And because we can readily image it, um, this is why it, it, it's so important these uh to today and the interpretation though has to be done and again has to be done in a timely fashion which is why deep learning and these advances advances in image interpretation are, are so critical 
And this is, I, I should have asked earlier, but this is available now, right? This is beyond uh, development or, or, or beta. You're, you're rolling this out now. Is that right? That's right. I mean, it, today you have, um, I mean, there's, there's multiple labs using um, the tool to um, appropriately um, manage MS patients. You, you've often read about the, the, the so-called retinal nerve fiber layer. This is the, the axons of the, the ganglion cell bodies. These are new, neuronal cells um, thinning with Alzheimer's. Uh, but inocular diseases, OCT and OCT analysis, so quantification, is actually the mainstay of uh, ophthalmic practices. It is the standard of care. So that this is out there. The, um, the, the full clinical utility is, is, is only scratched upon, I would say, in neurological diseases. Um, our understanding is in, increasing all the time with these tools, with, with data, with shared studies. Um, so largely it's out there in, in ocular diseases. Some university hospitals are using it in, in day to day routinely and, and arguing that others should, and this should be also the mainstay in neurological diseases. So it, it, we're at the, we're at a quite an exciting era. I mean, I did my, um, PhD, I graduated from my PhD in 2000 and, and that was we were ready to embark upon the, the so-called decade of the, the brain. We, we had all these fantastic 3D imaging and all the algorithms were coming into play. And this is the area that I was working on. And that's actually what motivated me to do a postdoc in, in neuroimaging because it's just such an exciting area. I think to some extent it's similar now with, with the eye and has been the last five years. This, this clearly is an exciting and important area. Um, and it, it's just critical that um, th this fundamental research is done. So the tools that we offer, I mean, our Orion software is, is a clinical research tool. Um, the, the main users are clinical research organizations, universities, pharmaceutical companies. That's because they're doing clinical research. The, the main utility of OCT, though, today and in practice is in ophthalmology. And that that is where it's the standard of care. Uh, you, you, you won't go far without having um, an OCT scan uh, done, at least in the Western world. And, and when we're talking about OCT scan, I'm going to go nerd tech on you just because I know there's a lot of other nerds out there listening. You know, a given scan, are we talking about gigabytes of data and then analyzing those against, you know, millions of algorithms to, to come up with possible scenarios? So not gigabytes of data, no. Typically about um, 100 megabytes would be a, a large um, OCT scan. It, it's it's optical coherence tomography, so it is tomography with tomo, the Greek for, for a slice. So it's a series of slices, so images, 2D images that are, are stepped through, the in, in our case, the back of the eye, the retina. You know, like you would have a tomogram uh, from CT, um, or at MRI and so on. You, you have these image slices going through the, the, the subject of interest to give you a, a 3D volume. Um, but they're not, that, they're not that large. I mean, the, 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 typically you might have 128 or 200 slices stepping through 
um, maybe six millimeters um, in the eye. Uh, so you'd have a six by six millimeter over, say, two millimeters depth, which is plenty. So 2,000 microns would be plenty to cover um, the extent of the retina. Mm. So what's interesting though there though is that the resolution is so small relative to say mri and ct so we we have approaching cellular level imaging of you know, neuron neuronal tissue and that that's really exciting but this has been around for a while and there's things now that we have adaptive optics so um to to get you to actually see you know, rods and cones in in the back of the eye, the actual photoreceptors that you that you have. So, with adaptive optics, you can you can get even higher resolutions. In general, we approach the cellular resolution of around, well, cellular resolution. I like to think of of 10 microns. We, it approaches 30, 20 microns, and in terms of depth resolution, approximately five microns. So this idea of shooting this light, this laser into tissue, and then interpreting the results. I mean, it sounds like there could there could be other applications for this. Is, do you see Voxeleron moving into some other things or uh, other applications? Or really, you know, in the foreseeable future, is it really about uh, the, the retina and the eye? Right now, um, it's about the, the retina and the eye. Um, you know, in general, in terms of uh, deep learning and artificial neural networks um, or convolutional neural networks, I think most of the work right now is being done in the field. Um, being done in the field is on replicating human performance. So, some examples of this, you know, are ImageNet, natural language recognition, self-driving cars. You know, it's it's the same in medicine. Most people, including us, are are working towards teaching a computer to be, you know, as as good as a human, or as good as the as the best physician. Um, in terms of what's next, I mean, I think some of the projects we're working on now are algorithms uh, that can do things that humans can't. So, for example, uh, we've been working on prediction of AMD progression. You know, Jonathan mentioned AMD earlier, or, or age-related macular degeneration. Uh, it affects uh, more than 10 million people in the U.S., and you know, I'll just reiterate what he said. It's responsible for about uh, 10% of blindness worldwide. Um, it starts out and has it has a, a more or less benign early or, or what's known as dry phase, and then eventually converts or pro- progresses into a, a more dangerous late or, or wet phase. And it's only in this wet phase where the vision loss occurs. Um, and right now, uh, phys- physicians have no way of predicting when patients will progress from dry to wet. Uh, we, we started working on this problem. We actually tried to get some experts together to, to give a guess. It's sort of a straw man for, for our work. And they refuse to. I mean, not even for the research paper. Uh, there's just no basis for making the prediction. Uh, so we trained a, a neural net um, on on this problem uh, just using the outcome data, you know, with no human interpretation involved. And we got a very strong predictive score. Um, you know, we, we had a, a journal paper published on this just recently. Um, and, and the neural net seemed to be able to pick out features from the data that humans just, just couldn't see. Uh, and that's something we're very excited about. I'm curious, you know, and a lot in AI is basically building models and then testing against, you know, data that already exists or uh, deploying against unseen data. How are you evaluating the effectiveness of your learned model? So uh, much of this depends on um, how you organize your data and how you organize your experiments. Um, so it, it's an it, it's an important point, but 
frequently missed, I feel, is, you know, how you test and, and how you train and how you split those. I mean, in general, we can say that if your, your performance in your whatever your classification task, your regression problem, if it's lacking, it's typically a, a bias or a variance problem, which means if it's a bias problem, you're un, underfitting, your, your model isn't complex enough for the data. It's a variance problem, you're overfitting, you've got a very complex model. And the way we gauge whether we're underfitting or overfitting is the, the classic split the data into a training set and a, and a test set, or often known as the, the um, cross-validation set. Um, so what we, what we then do, we train, and then we test against the unseen data and see how we're doing. So uh, this gives us an idea then of how we can how, how the performance will be when we actually kind of hit the road, when we go into real-world performance, how we're doing on unseen data. Um, but we, we ha one has to be careful, and this is one of the first things when reading uh, results, is, is, is how, how is that split done? Um, you know, we, we, if, you're, if you're looking at subject eyes, for example, and you're training on a set of subject eyes, and then you test against to see how you're doing in, in classifying or, or diagnosing or making an A measurement on another set of eyes, are you sure that the, the, the subject's left and right eye don't spread across test and, and train data sets because there's symmetry in, in someone's eyes that can essentially mean you're, tra you're, you're training on one thing and testing on something that's actually very similar. Wow. And so you've no real way of knowing if you're underfitting or overfitting. I mean, there's just very standard te te techniques for for, for doing this, I mean, anecdotally, I, I worked at um, a company doing um, uh, inspection of uh, semiconductor machines. And one of the things we used to do was classify defects on a wafer. And we'd have to do these demos where we would show our classification performance. And, yeah, you've got thousands of defects on a, on a wafer or uh, maybe on maybe hundreds. But you, you certainly have a lot. And we, we used to put together leave one out classification which is the most favorable for your um your, your approach so you you take all of the data and you just leave one out and then you train on all of that data and then see how you do on that one that was left out and, and you'd probably do pretty well because that defect the the likelihood is something very similar is already in your training set because it you know it might be it might be from the same wafer it might be even from the same die so it's kind of it's kind of drove then a, a meaningless result um, so I, I always check well how have they split their data um, a harder problem I worked on at, at another company was in um, fingerprint recognition uh, where we had to recognize um, whether the fingerprint was real or not it was from a real hand so from a real finger so was it a spoof or was it actually a finger? And the, the point here being that you, you've probably seen um, the born identity and so on. And he tricks the fingerprint reader by taking a bit of uh, sticky tape and putting it, getting a fingerprint off the desk and spoofing the system. <laughs> and, and people do it with gummy bears, and it's often very embarrassing. So the, the, the problem with that and, and figuring out the real-world performance of that system was difficult because in, typically we have a, positive and negative example to do the supervised learning with. Here we had just 
the positive examples, real fingers, but we didn't know the, the parameter space of the negative examples because someone could come out with something you know, completely different or so, you know, even take a finger out of, um, I don't know, <laughs> mortuary or something grim like that. But So you, you can't cover the entire space. So there we had to be a little more careful. We had to use dimensionality reduction. This was before the deep learning days and, and, and kind of have a notion of a parameter space that could be occupied by actual real fingerprints. So that, that was a little bit difficult. But I, I would say that, you know, current examples in, in, in deep learning and semantic segmentation of, of um, image data, like we've worked on, on nerve fibers and so on, we've, we've looked at the model that we've built. And if there's similar performance, we might take one that has the smaller parameter set. Uh, it was actually an interesting result in Daniel's work on um, the AMD prognostics that he managed to arrive at a simpler model which is actually a very good result. And people might look at that and say, well, that's not a very deep, uh, deep learning model. But, you know, you, you, don't, you don't win points for complexity. We want to deploy this stuff. And in order to generalize better, a, a simpler solution is, is actually a better one. But th there's other tricks. But, but in general, it's, your, it's how you organize your data and then how you are able to understand where you are in terms of bias and variance of the system. So I was reading on your site, how the use of the Voxelron technology is actually increasing collaboration with uh, universities and medical centers. So how, how are you enabling that? So I, I think we've been quite lucky with our collaborators. I mean, a, a few, um, I was lucky to work with um, when at Zeiss actually, and I've just made been fortunate enough to maintain relationships with those people. I, I developed multiple algorithms with them at the time, so we stayed in touch. And if they're still, you know, doing clinical research, then then we work with them. So they, the the I think the fortunate thing is we just managed to get a set of people who are just interested in getting things done. So there we can count Johns Hopkins, um, Idibaps in Barcelona. Um, Stanford University. We've been fortunate working with Moorfields, um, University College London, um, Bascom Palmer, which is part of University of Miami. So we've we've had relationships that were really useful as we started out. You know, we, we started out with no data. We needed a lab to give us data to work on to develop algorithms um, with a common interest. You know, we need this measurement. Could you help us? And we, that's how that's grown. And then as, we, as we're beginning to get um, more and more recognition, we, we obviously turn up at conferences, we submit papers and so on. That's just expanded. And I, I think that um, I, I, just, I would just summarize that we've been lucky. We, we work with really good people um, who've been really beneficial to our development, been helpful clinically. I think we've got pretty good domain knowledge in, in the areas we work in, but they're the experts. And they given guidance on what they would like to see developed. And then well, we worked on that. And we, 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 yeah, I guess in summary, we're just very fortunate with the people we work with. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I've, I have to ask the question that's on everyone's minds. We know <laughs> that you named the Dell workstation that you're using, Homer. Now, was this for the Greek poet or for Homer Simpson? Because Doug and I have a bet on this. <laughs> well, who Who's betting on what? 
<laughs> I, I want it to. It, it's obviously Homer Simpson. Ah, fantastic! <laughs> All right, Doug won. <laughs> nice work. Yeah, well, we're not that you. academic. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, thank you so much. Uh, to Jonathan and Daniel for joining us today. This has really been amazing. It's just what an adventure that you're on. And uh, you know, we're just so grateful that you're applying technology uh, for such for such a worthy cause. I actually have a niece that's struggling with MS right now. So, I mean, this is a topic that's very close to my heart. So thank you for all your great work. This is Mark Schaefer. And on behalf of Doug Carr, we thank you for listening to Luminaries. Join us next time, won't you? And we will continue our conversations with the brightest minds in tech. Luminaries, talking to the brightest minds in tech a podcast series from Dell Technologies.